In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he celebrated the Passover with his disciples. Arrested, tried, mistreated, and flogged, the next morning Jesus is crucified. He dies. And so that bodies wouldn't remain on the cross during the Sabbath, they rush to bury him. On the Sabbath, they all rest according to the commandment. Then comes Sunday. You know that day as Easter, when Jesus burst forth from the tomb. St. Paul tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the first member of the harvest. That means a bigger harvest is coming. There is more to follow. What you may not realize, though, is that the Jews observed the first Sunday after the Passover as the Feast of Firstfruits, the beginning of the harvest. In fact, it was forbidden to eat from the crop until the first fruits had been offered to God. So this is what's going on in the temple on Easter Sunday. Easter isn't like other days. That single particular day in human history marks the dawn of a new reality. The beginning of the culmination of God's promise of the resurrection. Jesus dies, but he doesn't stay dead. When Jesus dies, he goes to his death alone. On the night he is betrayed, he tells his disciples, Where I am going, you cannot come. And then, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That lone, solitary seed is Jesus. He must face our death alone. We cannot help him accomplish this work. But if he dies... If he is buried, he is raised to new life, and now he bears much fruit. This means that all who become partakers in his death, everyone who is baptized into the death of Jesus, will also be made partaker of his resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits of that uncountable throng in heaven from every tribe and nation and people and language. And yet, that first Easter day, only Jesus comes out of the tomb. The witnesses of the resurrection don't seem to have the courage to tell, well, anyone. The women, St. Mark tells us, said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The ten disciples are locked in the upper room for fear of the Jews. And we hear Thomas assert in no uncertain terms, that he does not believe the disciples' word. But then, over the next 50 days, Jesus appears to his disciples. He is revealed to the two on the Emmaus Road in the breaking of the bread. He restores Peter, again calling him to shepherd the Lord's beloved lambs and sheep. Jesus makes Peter pastor. Again and again, Jesus appears to his little flock. And St. Paul tells us that Jesus, after his resurrection, 
appeared to over 500 witnesses at one time. So the news of his resurrection spread far and wide. The kingdom grows, too, with our Lord's ascension. Forty days after his resurrection, he ascends into heaven. And the disciples stand agape, staring dumbfounded into the sky, until an angel reminds them what Jesus said, that they are to go and wait for the Holy Spirit. For Jesus ascends not to be absent, but to be with his church on earth. So he departs, saying, Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the disciples went out and preached, the Lord Jesus working with them. This brings us to the day of Pentecost. This also was a Jewish feast, but this is a feast of the harvest. Pentecost, the 50th day after Easter, a week of weeks, And the Lord brings in a spiritual harvest. On this day, over 3,000 souls are added to the Lord's church. So it seems fitting that it would be on the Jewish harvest festival that God would begin gathering a new kind of harvest with a new kind of celebration. This also explains to us why so many foreign Jews are in Jerusalem on that particular day. Jesus said his apostles would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Already, this promise is being fulfilled, but we're maybe getting a little ahead of ourselves. Now, I'd like to consider for a moment what the apostles were doing on this day. Now, we heard earlier that Pentecost is 50 days after the Feast of first fruits, So it's 50 days after Easter. This counting includes both the first and the last days, so Easter being day one, that makes today day 50. And so that means that this Pentecost recorded for us in Acts was also on a Sunday. And when the crowds hear preaching in their own languages, Some of them seem to think the apostles might have had a little too much communion wine. But Peter argues that, no, it's nine o'clock in the morning. We heard what Luke wrote, they were all together in one place. And we also hear in Acts 1 that they are devoted to prayer. So what do you suppose all these things might mean about what the apostles are doing What could it possibly be that would bring the apostles together to gather at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning to pray with other Christians? And outsiders seem to think that it's reasonable to conclude that wine might be involved. Now, I don't know that I can say it with certainty from the text, but these clues seem to be telling us that the Christians in Jerusalem have met in someone's home for the divine service. Now what about everyone else? What about all those other people? What are they up to? We know that Jews from all over the known world are gathered in Jerusalem, that they've come to offer the harvest sacrifice. And so many of them are probably near or at the temple. 
They've done this before, but something is different this year. For all of a sudden, out of heaven itself comes the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And I want to point out two things about that. First, the sound comes from heaven. This is no earthly phenomenon. It is of God himself. And second, it wasn't wind, but the sound of a wind. So let's put this picture together. We have the congregation. We're told elsewhere it was a crowd of 120 is praying, possibly in the divine service. And suddenly out of heaven comes this mighty rushing wind sound, and it blasts into the house where they are praying, and the sound fills the whole house. And then it's something that looks like fire divides into twelve and dwells with each of the apostles. And they begin to speak in other languages, as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Now the crowds come. They have been drawn by the miraculous sound. But it is not the sound of mighty rushing wind that brings them together. It is the sound of preaching. The sound of God's word proclaimed in their own mother tongue. The Holy Spirit speaks to them not in Hebrew or Latin or Aramaic, languages that many of them probably knew. Rather, the Holy Spirit preaches to them in their mother tongue. For those of you who are bilingual or who've studied other languages, you know that no word comes as close to your own heart as that of your mother tongue. And how much more to know that this is God's own word to you and for you. And so this speaking of other languages draws people together. And the people are amazed and perplexed. Some of them mock. The miracles of Pentecost are many. But the chief miracle that day was not the sound from heaven, nor the appearance of fire. It wasn't even that the apostles spoke in languages they hadn't studied. Rather, all these signs merely point to the chief miracle. The chief miracle that day happened when Peter stood up to preach. Now, if you go home today and you read Peter's Pentecost sermon, you'll find it's kind of a normal sermon. It's just a law gospel sermon. It's not a sermon about the Holy Spirit. It's a sermon about Jesus. And if you were to consider what he has to say in terms of law and gospel, you'd probably find it was a pretty heavy law sermon. Yet the Holy Spirit will do his work through these words. For at the end of Peter's sermon, the crowds were, as the ESV says, caught to the heart. But it's more forceful than that. We could probably say instead that this preaching stabbed them in the heart. It brought them to the end of themselves. Consider that many of these people were probably witnesses of all that had happened to Jesus in Holy Week. And even if they hadn't witnessed it themselves, certainly they had heard about it. And yet, the violence and the injustice done on those days does not cut them to the heart. It's 
rather when they hear the word preached. So does this mean that Peter is a better preacher than Jesus? Well, no. But here we see the Holy Spirit active through the word. For following Peter's sermon, the people now have a different question. No longer, what does this mean? Now they know what it means. For they have killed Jesus, the author of life, who God has raised to life again. And so they say, what shall we do? And I don't think their question is one of an eagerness to want to do something. Like, what's next? What do we get to do now? I think it's rather a question of complete despair of themselves. What else? What else is left? What else could possibly be done? And so to this question, Peter responds with pure gospel. God will act. He will wash you clean in the waters of holy baptism. He will give you salvation and life and a new heart. He will wash away your sins and give you his Holy Spirit. And so we see the chief miracle of Pentecost was the preaching of God's word and the hearing of that word with faith. The Holy Spirit is a preacher, and he preaches about Christ alone. And then, having brought 3,000 people into this crowd, in this crowd into his church and into the faith, they now are united around the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And all this happens because of what Jesus promised the disciples in our gospel text. Jesus specifically promises that the Holy Spirit will teach his apostles all things and bring to their remembrance all that Jesus has said to them. Jesus promises that the apostles will be inspired, that they will speak by God's Holy Spirit, that they will record only what God has authorized them to write down. That means that we can be certain about everything that they have written. This is the Holy Spirit's work. And he continues to be active every time we take up and read, every time our ears are opened to hear God's word. Now, some Christians might talk about Pentecost as though this is the beginning of the church, as though there were no Christians before this, and the Holy Spirit was inactive. But recall what Jesus does when he meets his disciples in that locked room on Easter Sunday. He gives them the Holy Spirit, and he authorizes them to forgive and retain sins in his name. And David in the Old Testament prays, as you will in just a few moments, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And so we see also that the Holy Spirit is given for a purpose. He's given to you to be with you when he brings you to faith in Christ. He's given to the apostles as Christ authorizes them to forgive and retain sins. And in our text today, he's given the Holy Spirit for the preaching of the gospel. In our Sunday morning Bible study, we're in the midst of studying the salutation, that part in the divine service where the pastor says, the Lord be with you, and the congregation responds, and with, and with thy spirit. For more than a mere greeting and response, here the congregation blesses the pastor 
and authorizes him to pray on their behalf, or to speak the words of Jesus in the Holy Gospel, or to put the name of God upon the people in the benediction. Our LCMS father, Wilhelm Leah, called this the little ordination. In that response, you pray for your pastor, that the Holy Spirit would be with him as he goes about doing the things that he has been called and authorized to do. You recognize that what he is about to do is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Of everything that happens on Pentecost, it's chiefly a festival of preaching. In fact, it's all rather ordinary. Other churches might tell you that you need a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit with signs and wonders. But you see here in Acts that it's all very calm. Preaching is divinely instituted by Christ. Christian preachers today do the same thing that Peter did on that Pentecost and by the same Holy Spirit. That means Christian preaching should be filled with words of eternal weight that will last forever, not words that are temporary and frivolous. For it is by this Christian preaching that the Holy Spirit now comes to take what belongs to Jesus and declare it to you. Pentecost is about the delivery of everything that Jesus has won for you. It's about the preached word and sacraments. The Bible is the Holy Spirit's testimony, in which he testifies that God has taken away your sins in the death and resurrection of Jesus and has delivered this to you. And he does so even now, in the holy name of Jesus. The peace of God fill your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We stand for the offertory.